Well, good morning, everybody. Let me just jump right in. I'm excited about what we'll be studying through in James today. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll just get into it. God, you are so good, and we thank you, Lord, for a place this morning to come just as we are. Lord, to come as a people along the way, to come as a people searching, a people, some people hurting, some people experiencing kind of the up of life and victory or or maybe even just walking in joy in all things. God, I know that we are all over the place coming in with, you know, if there's, if there's 80 people in here coming in with 80 different stories and 80 different journeys that brought us to this point. But God, we know that, um, Lord, you are working in a very intentional way uh, for the sake of each one of us to come to an understanding of who you are or that we can know redemption in Christ and we can know our purpose in this world and be a part of uh, just glorifying you and calling others in. So we give you this time, Lord. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate your word. God, take the words that I speak and catch them on fire. I know that if that doesn't happen, nothing will be accomplished. And so, God, we plead your work today. We thank you that you are always faithful, even when you are not. And may your name be lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, great. This is our second week <laughs> through the study of James. And if you're hot, we turned the air on. It was cold when we came in. Then it was hot when everyone else came in. And so... Hopefully it'll cool off. I remember like three weeks ago, I mean, it was steaming in here. So hopefully we won't get there today. Um, but we're in our second week of studying through James. And uh, just, man, I'm, this, is, this is really fun for me. I'm glad to be working back through a book. Uh, just to kind of give you some quick, quick background. Uh, if you didn't get to hear last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go back because it really sets the tone, sets the pace for, for all that is to come from now until May. We're going to be in James through May. And so I would encourage you to go back it's right at, if you've got 35 minutes, maybe it's your commute. Listen to it. It's on our app or you can go to our website. Um, but just to kind of give you some quick background, this is written by James. It's a, it's a pastoral letter uh, to uh, Jewish Christians that have been scattered by persecution. So there are people that are outside of their familiar, they're outside of their home, and they're, they're living in a culture that is not their own. They're living as a, as a minority where they're oppressed, they're persecuted, they don't have access to means. This is their reality. So they are a people facing very real trial and struggle. So this is a, a pastoral letter to encourage but it's also extremely strong. People love James because it's practical. We want to know how to live our lives. We want to know what it means to live for God as a Christ follower. You know, we want to know, and that's what we love James for, is that it's practical. It's, it's greatly encouraging, but it's also pretty rough. <laughs> it doesn't pull punches. It just lays it out there. So sometimes you got to be careful that you get for what you ask for. You get what you ask for. And so you're going to get to know how to live, and that's going to call us to surrender and to confess, but, but it's great because it is. It's just really clear. And so it's a pastoral letter. It also kind of fits into this uh, wisdom writing. So it's just, just kind of all these grabbing thoughts of practical teaching, um, just kind of seeming to jump from one, th one thought to another. But as we talked about last week, it all fits in this one theme of how our trials work for God's purpose in our life. And it's about seeing God glorified and us knowing in this present life the joy in Christ and, and our wholeness in Him. So go ahead, open your Bibles to James 1 if you haven't already. Um, we'll have text on the screen. Uh, you can also use uh, the version Bible app, uh, and we've got a live event there. If you open up the Bible app, go to more, go to the events tab, we'll pop up because of GPS. That's got our text there as well as some questions for further reflection. We're going to be looking at James 1, 5 through 8 today. 
But before we get to our text today, I thought it would be one, I thought it would be great to kind of put a bow on something from last week that we didn't really mention. Um, James 1.4, it says this, it says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's in the context of going through trials with joy. And we talked about there's joy because we can know that God is sovereign and working and that he's good in all of our trials. He's, so, he's sovereign over our struggles so we can have joy because we know that he is faithful to do his work. We know that he is always actively working. And so we talked about last week that in our trials we can have joy because we know that God is doing the work of strengthening our faith through the trials as we persevere and that God is making us more into his likeness through that perseverance of trials. So that results in the steadfastness bringing us to this place of being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we talked about that. And when we come to this word, perfect, we have to see this here in the right way. Um, the, the word complete there, sorry, the word complete is a very important word. In the Greek, if you care, it's the word holokleros, uh, which, you know, it equals this. It's, it's to be whole, it's to be healthy, it's the picture of wholeness, the, the, the healthiness of all of self, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual, and the, and the restored life. Because you see that when we were created, we were created by God, for fellowship with him. We were created in perfection. Um, and, but in our fallenness of our sin and the fact that Adam and Eve fell and we have all sinned against God, a fracture occurred. If you recall, if that sounds familiar or if that's brand new, at that moment, everything fractured. Every relationship that mankind had fractured. The relationship of self, the relationship between one another, the relationship we have with creation, and ultimately the relationship we have with God. So at that moment, we became a fractured people. So what James is pointing us to here is that the work done in Christ is the one of restoring that fracturedness, the one of restoring us to wholeness. And then, so he's talking about this complete restoration, this complete wholeness to where, yes, we are made new. We are made to stand right before God in, in Christ and in his righteousness. But then he's also showing us how to live out this wholeness. And so that's what we're working through here through this entire book. You know, this whole first chapter sets up the rest of the, of the four chapters. And so we'll see all the themes introduced here, and these are all the ways in which God is showing us how to live out our wholeness that he accomplished in Christ. Man, if you think about popular psychology, if you think about all the blog posts, all the things you read, it is somehow related to, to knowing yourself, to being satisfied with who you are, to, 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 to being whole. It's, it's, it's an occupation of everyone's mind. And so we're seeing, so this should pique your interest. His key, one of James' key objectives is to show or remind you that God has made you whole in Christ. And then he wants to show you how to live a whole life for the glory of God, an undivided life, if you will. So we think about this, this is a life with the internal and external consistency, where the motivation of your heart and your mind match the realities of your behavioral life. This is because of the reality of our transforming and liberating relationship with our Heavenly Father made possible by Jesus Christ. So it's extremely important because as we move forward, we want to have that momentum pushing us through this text that is the, the invitation to wholeness as well as the command to wholeness. We talked about last week that this should result in a radically God-centered life. 
permeating all of who we are. We're just carrying that forward. So with that being said, let's jump into our text for today. We're going to read it in whole, and then we'll break it down. So James 1, 5 through 8, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So as we said, although much of James seems like he's just pulling thoughts from a word cloud, He's just sitting there kind of letting his mind wander and thinking of circumstances and just writing to him. And that may have been what he was doing. But, but here we can see that without a doubt, there is a train of thought from verse 4 to verse 5. So as a matter of fact, as I said earlier, as we've split up these verses over the next few weeks, uh, the, the thought that was introduced in verses 2 through 4 actually kind of has a bookend in verse 12 which we'll get to in two weeks. So there really is this continuation, especially in the intro. So what is James teaching us today? What's he teaching us today? I don't know about you, but when I read these verses, I find myself wishing that James would have just stopped after verse 5. Verse 5 is great. You remember what it said? It said, if any of you lacks wisdom, I know I do. I know Amber knows that I do. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's good. I like that. I wish he would have stopped there. I get the value of asking for wisdom. You think about today, the, the, the world that we live in, there's so much shifting culture, and man, there's shifting political landscape these days. And, and, and how do we know the right place to stand when we're thinking about defunding Planned Parenthood and we're thinking about, yes, we should fight against the killing of innocent lives and abortion, but yet we should also fight for the help, helping of those, those women that don't have help. And we, or when it comes to the refugees and immigration, we should have the heart of the, of the Heavenly Father that welcomes in the alien that, that, says, that, that speaks of the sojourner and says, welcome them in and care for them. And yet, it makes sense to just, I mean, you have a lock on your door for a reason, right? You lock your doors at night for a reason. So then to think about, yes, we should think about protecting ourselves, but yet we're supposed to have this, man, I'm supposed to love people. The greatest commandment is to love God, and the second one is to love people. And all the other commands come after that. So there's a need for wisdom. Not, that's not our talk for today of what do we do about those things, but we see the difficult place for us that are finite, for us that are just trying to figure it out, for us that don't know all that God knows, but yet we want to be faithful. So we see that there is a value in asking for wisdom. I'm grateful for verse 5, and hopefully today we'll see why we can, why we can be grateful for the rest of the verses. But when I come to verses 6 through 8, I'm like, James, why did you have to go there? Like, it was going so good, man, and you just had to ruin it. Like, I think about, I'm so glad I don't have to go on first dates anymore, because that was like a common experience for me. But uh, it's more of like what she said, like, you was just going so good, Heath. But thankfully, it got me to Amber, and none of those other ones worked out. So praise the Lord, right? But, you know, you come, you read verse 5, and you're like, man, I'm encouraged. And then verse 6 says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. And I'm like, man, that uh, 6 through 8 sounds a lot like me. I'm like, that, how, how, how did these come together? Well, let's do it. So verse 5, what is the implication of verse 5? 
Here's the implication. Here's what it's saying. We lack wisdom, right? We know that. We lack wisdom, and we need to ask for it. We need to ask for it in order to be complete or whole, as we were talking about. So we lack wisdom, and we need to ask for it. So first I'll say this. We must see that wisdom is from God, and it's about God. It is from God, and the aim of wisdom is actually God himself. I appreciate David Platt and the observations that he made of, of, what, it, of what it is that we lack when we lack wisdom. And he put it this way. He says, we, when we lack wisdom, we lack knowledge, perspective, and experience. We lack knowledge, perspective, and experience. When we lack knowledge, we cannot know all that is going on. We lack perspective. We cannot possibly see things from every angle. We just can't. And we lack experience. We lack experience in what it takes to do what is required. We are out of our depths. Now that's us. We lack experience, perspective, and knowledge. But God, on the other hand, what about God? God possesses all knowledge. He is omniscient. God sees from an eternal perspective because he is eternal. There is no past, present, and future. He sees it all at one time. And he sees it all. And in Christ, God has experienced every trial that we have, and he has prevailed over them. So when we lack wisdom and we ask for it, what we are saying is, yes, we are lacking in these things, and if we want to find growth in these things, then we actually must pursue our eternal God. You cannot overcome the confines of our finiteness, the fact that we are human. We are none of those things. We are not omniscient. We do not exist out of time, and we have not experienced everything. We cannot overcome these confines of humanness or the finiteness by seeking out other finite things. By seeking it out in this world, we must turn to the eternal, our eternal God. A, defini a definition of wisdom that I've always appreciated is this one. Uh, it is, it is uh, that right knowledge, is, wisdom is right knowledge rightly applied. So let's think back to last week and thinking of this kind of idea that we're talking about of pursuing wisdom and what wisdom is. The outputs from last week, we already mentioned them, as we, as we persevere through our trials and we see God proven faithful, we grow in our faith. Our faith of what? Our faith of who God is. That we can say with confidence that he is faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. Because he is unchanging. Because he is eternal. Because he is sovereign. Because he is good. Because his mercy and his justice never conflict. They are always fully expressed to the fullest degree that they could possibly be because they are simply who he is. So we grow in our faith. And the other output is that we are made more into the likeness of God. We were created in his image and fullness in the, and that was marred and now we are being restored. So that is restoration. Again, it's the restoring of what is fractured, that which was fractured being mended. So when we say we want wisdom, we're essentially saying we want God. Rightly applying our understanding is a work of the whole self, the transformed self, the one that, is, that was old at one time and has now become new, the one that was dead and now has life. So applying this understanding is a work of all of who, it's, it's a work of all that we are. And it affects all that we are. 
So do you see? Do you see how this is, how this is rooted in what we said last week of trials making us more into His likeness? Are we getting there yet? See, God is working for us to know Him and for us to be known by Him. One of the things you'll hear here a lot is, is the importance of working to know and be known. And God did that work first. And as we are known by Him and we grow in knowing Him, we actually take on His character, His characteristics. So the first half of verse 5 is this imperative to you and to me. It's a command. It's a command that says we should desire the wisdom God gives and we must ask for it. We should desire it and we should ask for it. We will find it nowhere else. The second half of verse 5 is teaching us about God and hopefully liberating us to ask. So what is this quality of God's gift of wisdom that he gives? The quality of God's gifts is a direct expression of his own character. Verse 5, it comes to where it says, Who gives generously, speaking of God, who gives generously to all without reproach? And it will be given him. So ask Because God gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Do you get it? The creator God, God of the universe, we are being implored to come to God and to ask for what we need. Do you hear the heart of God being expressed here? Again, this is, let me just say one more time because I interrupted myself. The God of the universe, the creator God, the one who is above all, the one who we cannot fathom. He is saying, he is saying, come to me and ask for what you need. This is the same God who set out to meet our ultimate need of salvation and redemption by sending his only son. He sent Jesus before we ever asked. He is proactive in meeting that need. Before God ever spoke judgment against us, he spoke his plan of redemption. Did you realize that? You look at Genesis 3, 14. It comes to just after the fall when Adam and Eve sinned against God and God comes into the garden and he's confronting the serpent and Adam and Eve. And God looks at the serpent and this is what it says. The Lord God said to the serpent, which is Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right there, he shall bruise your head. That is speaking of the coming Messiah. That is speaking of Jesus. The, 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 the bruising of a hill is not a fatal blow. It's a wound. The bruising of the head is a fatal, defeating blow. And in that moment, as soon as judgment was required, the thing that God spoke first was his plan for redemption. Because what follows in verse 16 and 17 is the judgment against Adam and Eve, the judgment that we will toil in this world. There will be pain in childbirth. There will be, there will be sorrow. That's, that's what we see next. But we see God's heart for calling us in, for restoring and meeting our need from the very beginning. So we see that, the, and then you see that God gives, and then we see the manner in which he gives. It says that he gives without reproach. And if you look at the Greek, I'm not going to tell you the Greek word because, again, maybe, what does it help? But with, if you look at the Greek word, the, 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 the sense of it is that he gives without getting angry. He gives without consequence. He gives without punishing you. Why does that matter? Is it, is it, 
is it maybe stirring in the heart yet? God is not surprised by your need. He's not frustrated by your lacking. He's not exasperated by your humanness. He created you that way. And He knows your need. He created you. He knows you. And He wants to complete His work in you. I have two kids. They're six and they're four. And one, I think like, one of the greatest things I can teach them is to be comfortable and actually take joy in coming to my, myself and Amber and saying, I don't know. Because knowing that because we love them and we're for them, we actually find joy in teaching them. We actually find joy in correcting their misunderstanding. This is the heart of God. So here's what God is promising. He says, I've told you that you need my wisdom, so come to me and ask. If you ask, I will give it to you without getting mad at you. Why in the world would God be displeased with us for asking him for the very thing that he has told us we need and can only get from him? We hide from God. We feel shame. Romans 8 tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's invited us. We see the heart of the Father here in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, as Jesus is teaching. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I love what John Calvin said. He said this. It's on your screens here. It says, Since we see that the Lord does not so require from us what is above our strength, but that he is ready to help us provided we ask, let us, therefore, learn whenever he commands anything to ask him Ask of him the power to perform it. What a comfort. What a comfort. So, man, I pray, I hope, now that we see the motivation and aim of our ask, that it's rooted in who God is, and we see in a greater view who God is. Let us look at these last three verses with a little bit more fortitude, confidence, eagerness, not fear. Let's read those. Six through eight. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So there is this obvious this theme of faith just flowing through all of this. We are told to ask in faith. Just as I, as I think about that, I try to think of the full heart of God and the expression of what we're being called to here. I think about to, to, to ask in faith is to ask from within the reality, from within the reality of who God is. Our confidence of our ask is not in us, but in Him. I love the illustration a friend of mine used to share, uh, and, and I identify this. I remember the first time I walked on frozen water, I went up to Michigan, and uh, I had been out there in the summer, and I went swimming in this lake, and it's one of those lakes that had a floating dock, and we swim out to the dock. And, and I remember coming out later that winter, and it, it was just snow, and it was freezing. It's up in, like, northern Michigan. And, and, and they're like, Heath, let's, let's walk out to the dock. And I go to the edge of the lake where I once swam to the dock, and I look at the dock, and I was like, no way. I'm not walking out to the dock. 
And they're like, come on, you can do it. I was like, no, how do I know that ice can hold me? And they were like, they kind of nudged me and they pointed out, you know, out at the middle of the lake. And there's this big full-size pickup truck with a snowplow in front out there driving around making an ice skating ring. And they're like, Heath, I think it's going to hold you. Now, and then I walked out to the dock. Now, if they would not have shown me that, and, I would have, and they would have drugged me out there kicking and screaming, would my belief about that ice affected at all if that ice would have held me or not? It didn't matter what I thought about the ice. The ice was a foot and a half thick. It would have held me no matter what I thought about the ice. This is the confidence of our faith. It is not the strength of us that makes our faith effective. It is the strength of the God which our faith is in that is strong. This is the beauty of asking in faith. It is asking from within the reality of who God is, knowing that we are growing. Have you ever heard the word, being, the, the word about being, the word sanctified? It is the word of being made more like him over the work of our salvation in this life. We are saved in Christ, but then we are working out salvation in the fact that we are being made more like him. That is this picture. We have a freedom to, to, to rest in the strength of God, and that is where our faith is strengthened. The confidence of our ask is in him, not us. Faith calls us beyond ourselves. And then we see here, it says, ask in faith. It says, with no doubting. And if you, if you were here when we talked through Habakkuk, you're like, wait a second, that contradicts what we said in Habakkuk because we talked about the experience of faith. There is no faith without doubt because, again, faith is the belief in what is not seen. So if you don't doubt, why do you need faith? And so we talked about how it is just important to doubt well. So does this contradict? Let's work through it. This word doubt is this word diacrino, which is without hesitation, with full confidence. That's the, that's the true sense of this word, without hesitation, with full confidence. So ask in faith, without hesitation, with full confidence. Why can't we do that? Because of who God is, not in our understanding. One who doubts is like one tossed by the waves, it says. We read that in Ephesians 4. We studied that a couple years ago. But waves are of this world. Waves are like our circumstances. And if, and, if we are, and if all we do is define what is true, what is right, what is good by the finite things of this world, then the world will just sweep us to and fro. All we'll see is the waves hitting us. We will not be able to see that there is one who controls the waves. Do you remember what the disciples said? Who is this? that even the winds and the waves obey him. And so the one who doubts, the one who asks without full confidence is the one who is leaning on his own confidence, not who God is, and therefore the circumstances of this world just thrash him about. Who is God? Do you know, do you believe that he is, once again, let me just, let me, we say this a lot, I can't say it enough, that he is sovereign, he is creator, he is holy, he is good, he is loving, he is just, he's omniscient, omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's unchanging, he's compassionate, he's sacrificial, he's benevolent. We cannot define God's goodness by our circumstances or by ourselves. God created us in his image. We cannot turn around and try to make him into our image. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. 
Do you hear the restoring truth? Do you hear that which was fractured being mended? So what do we do with these last two verses? Last week, we were left with the charge to pursue a radically God-centered life. We find ourselves right back there again. Verses 7 and 8 are describing a kind of spiritual schizophrenia. To be double-minded is to be double-souled, as we see here in the text, if you were to kind of dig into it a little bit. Double-minded is double-souled. One part of you cries out, I believe, while the other half cries out in disbelief. You're like, now, Heath, that, uh, that sounds like it's impossible to escape. Well, let me, let me clarify a little bit. This describes a reality beyond our prayers. It permeates all of who this person of faith is in all of his ways. It, it, it infiltrates and overcomes your personal life, your spiritual life, your social life, your professional life. And again, this will continue through all of James. So lock this away. Hold on to it. Let it become a filter in which we understand. We have to remember that the fractured self being restored and presented whole once again is, is the work we are seeing here. So this duplicity affects this person's kingdom effectiveness. We were saved for eternal security and hope, but we were also saved for a kingdom purpose here today. We cannot be saved without following Jesus, not just into salvation, but following him into purpose. So we have to see this whole self. So how can any of us get past this duplicity? Because I feel when I read that that I'm kind of doomed. So let's close by quickly looking at an account of a man desperately seeking healing for his son from Jesus. We find this in Mark 9, and I'll have the text we need on the screen, so uh, you can turn there if you want, but it'll be up there too. In Mark 9... We see a dad who is desperate. His son, since birth, has had an unclean spirit that causes, he, he's been mute, and it causes him to go into horrible convulsions, convulsions to throw himself to the ground and to froth at the mouth, and even, time, and even at times, I mean, throw, throwing him in, into fires. It's just been this horrible, stressful existence, and he's desperate, and he brings, he brings the son to the disciples, and they, they try, and they can't heal him. So now there's this commotion. They're, they're, they're trying to figure out why it's not working. Why is he not being healed? What's going on? And Jesus walks up and observes the, the commotion. He says, hey, what's going on? And they tell him, hey, he came, crazy stuff with his son. We tried to heal him. We couldn't. And Jesus is like, how long will you not believe? And then he turns to the father. And we pick up there in verse 21. It says, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And he has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, do you catch that? If you can, <laughs> he says, all things are possible for one who believes immediately. I mean, like the reality just, just hit the father like a knife in the chest. Immediately the father of the child cried out, Desperation continues and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus goes on to heal the boy to the astonishment of all that he gathered. How is this father not double-minded? This is extremely comforting for me. 
I'm going to, I really appreciate how this one commentary summarized it, so I'm just going to read how this commentary summarized here. It says, such an exclamation seems to suggest that the father was a double-minded man, but there's a difference. The father was not oscillating between belief and unbelief. He desired to believe and even asserted his belief. But because he felt keenly the inadequacy of his faith, he asked for help in believing. He was not facing in both directions at the same time like the double-minded man of James 1.8. In spite of his conscious weakness, the father had set his heart to believe. And Christ responded to his faith and healed his son. In response to this kind of faith, God will give wisdom to those who ask for it and will enable them to persevere in times of trial. So the life of wholeness results in a radically God-centered life. Our peace is not limited to our own understanding, but is rooted in God. As we persevere through trials and, and, and trust in God as we go, we will grow in our trust of God's wisdom and experience and experience what is to be what it is to be whole in Jesus Christ. Because God is good. He is for his creation. He will give you all that you need to do what he has called you to do. So if we lack in wisdom, let us ask. Let me pray. So God, I just pray right now that the grace of this truth would wash over us. Lord, that as that happens, Lord, that we would find, Lord, all that we are strengthened or given this resolve to pursue living this life out in our unperfect belief. Lord, we are marred by limited vision, finite knowledge, lacking experience. We just cannot get there on our own. But God, we thank you that ultimately the work here is what you have invited us into of knowing you, being known by you, pursuing you, the, our Heavenly Father, the Creator God, God of all things, the one who is, who is wholly transcendent and yet fully imminent. God, I pray that that would wash over us. I pray that would result in a, in a peace and a freedom and a courage. And I pray that we would also hear this charge, this command to pursue this, this life of, of, of wholeness, not just experiencing wholeness in the feel-good way, but, but, but pursuing to live out the wholeness in a consistent way. Lord, that we, that we our heart, our soul, is one aimed at belief, even in our struggle to believe. Lord, you are good. You are God. And Lord, you showed that in Christ. So, Lord, as we rest in the saving grace of Jesus, let us also live with absolute purpose for the renown of his name, knowing that the only hope for this world, the only remedy is found in him. And we, your people, are the ones who are charged to love our neighbors unto Jesus, to go out to the ends of this earth as you've given us opportunity and you've given us call. Let us compel each other to that. 
Lord, as the church, let us participate in the proclamation of who Jesus is and let us participate in the building up and caring for the body of Christ. Lord, only you can help us do that. We love you, we praise you. Lord, continue to teach us in this time of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.